Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. Got a lot to get to today. I want to talk to you about last week I was at CPAC, why I was there, and then give you some observations about things I noticed about the future of conservatism. So that should be interesting. Also, no episode of mine in the last few weeks, at least, last few months, really, would be complete without mentioning something about the crazy world of Southern Baptists. So we'll talk about that and a few other fun things. Uh, secularization really is the theme, I would say, for this particular episode. Um, before we, we get to any of that, though, a few announcements. Number one, I will be at the Shepherds Conference uh, this coming week. If you're going to be there, uh, please let me know. Facebook message me, Twitter message me. That's the best way to get to me. Number two, um, I, I will be busy the next couple weeks, like really busy. I have a hard deadline on uh, a thesis I have to submit, a rough draft for it. And, uh, and part of this is working on um, some social justice related uh, issues that I'm, I'm hoping to use for a future project this summer that uh, I won't say anything more about, but you can wait in anticipation on what that is. But um, I'm hoping to get some guest hosts uh, for this. I may be able to put out some short videos, but for those who wonder, hey, where'd John go? Is he slackening off? No, if anything, I'm actually working harder. It's uh, just that um, some of this work is going to be like an iceberg. It's underneath the surface and uh, it will emerge. It will emerge. It's just a matter of time. Uh, but just wanted to, to give you a heads up on that. Thank you, by the way, for all uh, those who support my work, who have enabled me to go to places like CPAC, um, who have uh, enabled me to even do some of the research that I'm going to be doing. And so um, I appreciate that so much. Now, uh, before I get started with the, the main material, I want to talk a little bit about uh, this. Um, Philip Haney is a uh, what was a Department of Homeland Security whistleblower during the Obama era. And I got the privilege of meeting Phil. I, I rode in the car with him, talked to him for about 25 minutes. Um, just a really sweet guy, uh, really nice. Um, he's a born-again, Bible-believing Christian, uh, from what I know. And uh, he unfortunately passed away last week, and um, I know some people that were close to him, and it's being ruled a suicide. Uh, it is not a suicide from everything that I can tell uh, from what I've been hearing. Uh, enemies within the church will probably probably be putting out something on this. Uh, they interviewed Phil. He will be speaking from the grave in the Enemies Within the Church movie when, when that comes out. That's actually why I was at CPAC, was to raise support for that. And I think they're about 70% of the way there. Uh, they just need to get over the the, the hump they have um, to, to finish the film, and uh, Phil Haney was part of that. Um, Judd Saul, the director, tells me that he thinks that Phil Haney, uh, he knows he told him personally, and I believe Kerry Gordon, the uh, face of the film, but he thinks he might have him on film saying that if I'm ever found dead, it wasn't a suicide. And so they're looking into that right now, uh, but figured I'd mention that. Please pray for his family. Um, it, it's, it's good that he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, repented of his sins, trusted in, in Christ and, uh, you know, has that hope, but his family I'm sure is, is grieving over this. And, um, and it's just a really just sad thing. It's, I'm not going to speculate right now or say anything more about the details of this other than, um, it does not look like a suicide, which is what they're ruling this. Uh, so, so. To the the main uh, subject, though, of today, secularization really is the word that I would use to um, talk about, uh, sort of tie together everything we're going to be talking about. Uh, on the left, there's uh, Bernie Sanders there, and it's an article that says, you know, he doesn't think that Christians are fit to hold public office. Now, Snopes is disputing this. Essentially, here, here's the transcript. He said that those who claim that uh, Muslims do not know God or stand condemned, those are the kind of people, they, you know, they shouldn't be in the public square. And so really, here, here's the deal. If you're an Orthodox Christian and you hold Orthodox beliefs about the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, you're not fit. And we're seeing this just from, it's not just Sanders. I'm using that as just one. Um, I think it was a statement he made in 2017. It's, it's one example. But uh, Christian beliefs on um, sexuality uh, especially are not really viewed as appropriate for the public square. And this is a problem. Uh, and this, the secular world doesn't necessarily want uh, Christians to just go away. They want Orthodox Christians to go away. A Christianity that doesn't challenge the status quo is fine. It was the same way in the Roman Empire. You know, as long as you did your sacrifice to Caesar, you were fine. Uh, if you refuse to do that and say Caesar was Lord, you're in trouble. And so if you're a true Christian, you're not going to do that. And so we have to make these distinctions. We have two Christianities. We're going to have the Christianity that is going to try to become uh, ingratiated with the power structures of the country and 
then we have the Christianity that's true. And more likely, that kind of Christianity is not going to be in positions of authority. Uh, unless uh, you know they they're able to um, convince enough people to vote for him for, for them in, in public office uh, or uh, in in other ventures, um, you know they're they're going to have to f- find some grassroots support. But uh, we are seeing secularization um, just come at us full speed. It's been coming for years, you know, hundreds of years really. Uh, but it, it's it's really starting to um, become uh, who I would say. Um, totalitarian in, in its approach. Uh, and, and then on the right, this is an example of Christianity uh, ingratiating itself. This is a false kind of Christianity, I think, creeping up. It's an article from Christianity Today that came out recently. Polyamory, Pastors Next, Sexual Frontier. And I'm not going to read for you any quotes, or you can go look at it yourself, but the way in which polyamory is treated here, we would not treat any of the let's say, less than desirable sins. We would never treat racism the way they're treating polyamory with a um, fine-tooth comb and kid gloves, essentially, uh, trying to understand what, uh, what polyamory is and, and develop some compassion for the, those who have uh, these tendencies. And there should be some compassion, but, uh, but the prophetic voice is being completely lost. And we, we are, um, and when I say we, those who identify as Christians are being uh, more and more sucked into a secularized culture. And, and that's really the root of a lot of the issues that we're seeing out there. Um, I want to talk about this. Uh, this is uh, a sign that I saw at the Smithsonian, the Natural History Museum. It says, what does it mean to be human? How are humans today different from other apes, primates, and mammals? And this exhibit shows how the characteristics that made us human evolved over six million years as our ancestors struggled to survive during times of dramatic climate change. Now, there's a lot of leftist assumptions in that, but here's the point. This is a hard question for secularists. Think about it. Why should we treat humans different than we should treat dogs or rats or, I don't know, uh, coronavirus? (laughs) Why are humans different than that? Uh, We don't kill humans. We, We like to kill diseases, right? They're both living. Uh, Well, here's what the exhibit said. Well, we've gone through this long evolutionary process to where we've come. And where we've come is a state in which we we can think in abstract terms. We have abilities and characteristics the animal kingdom doesn't have. Well, it's true that we have these abilities, right? Well, so here's where the logic leads, though. If you think about it, the exhibit didn't go this direction, but I'm asking you to think with me. If we are different than dogs because we have higher mental faculties, What about someone who is mentally handicapped versus someone who is Einstein genius? Is the person who's Einstein genius uh, more worthy of living than the person who's mentally handicapped? You can see where this logic goes, and we know where this logic has gone. So this is a problem for secularists. Now, what does it have to do with uh, what I'm about to talk about, which is critical race theory, intersectionality, etc., etc.? We can just call it all critical social justice theory. Here's what it has to do with it. This is... um, came out, I believe, today or yesterday. This is uh, Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. Esau Macaulay on Reading While Black. And this is a textbook um, textbook article. You can go read it on Standpoint Epistemology. And I talked about this uh, with you last week with Bill Roach, Standpoint Epistemology, right? And, and, and Bill made the point that, and I'm going to just try to summarize this for you before I connect these two things. Bill tried to make the point that in its current iteration, standpoint epistemology says that your level of oppression gives you an ability to see things that those who have privilege don't see. So if you are uh, a single black female who's left-handed and introverted, you're really oppressed. And you can see things that those who are in majority culture perhaps can't see. So they should just listen to you and you should give them the lens by which you look at everything through. You have a certain truth. You have ability of of looking at things, right? They have their truth. You have your truth. But your truth um, in the current uh, hierarchy is actually more uh, more truth. It's it's more truthy. It's got, there's a little more to it that we should listen to and let direct our public policy, so forth and so on. That's where we're at. Now, the, the, the problem with this is that as you get going and as, as you, 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 be, you develop more characteristics, everyone's experience is different. So everyone has a different lens eventually. I mean, you can try to create these kind of Marxist, neo-Marxist social groups, but there's variations in those. And so, 
you know, you could say there's the there's the black community, but within that community, there are there's a huge wide array of different experiences. And so you end up on these islands of thought where you can't really you have your view and you can't really communicate with anyone else completely. It's, it's very difficult because you th see things differently than they see things. And well, you have your truth. They have their truth. And um, and obviously there there is a sense in which uh, there's an effort to try to uh, let certain viewpoints run the show, uh, so to speak. But uh, but we're told that, especially myself as a, a white uh, male who's heterosexual, uh, I am part of the hegemony. I, I'm unable uh, to fully get it in the current uh, hierarchy that, that we are seeing emerging. So um, all that to say, I'm going to connect it now to the evolutionary Darwinian uh, a thought, but what? How do we relate to one another in a world in which everyone uh, has their own view based on their experience, based on what they do, based on what they've seen? Well, we we have a hard time doing it. There's really no unity in that. Compare that with a Christian understanding of the Imago Dei. Now, I know a lot of social justicians will throw out the Imago Dei and say, well, you know, the immigrant and the sojourner, Imago Dei, we can't deport them, or something like that, which is a complete misapplication of what the Imago Dei is. They're just using it for political power. They're not really thinking about what the Imago Dei is. The Imago Dei, the image of God, is what gives us all intrinsic worth and relatability. It means we're all of the same, in a sense, the same nature, same substance. We, we actually have emotions that are similar to one another because we're both made after the image of God. There's actually a blueprint for both of us, and it's the same blueprint. We can relate. We can have things like sympathy. I don't have to enter into every single experience that you have to have sympathy. That's why empathy is so you know big right now. Sympathy isn't, right? Because uh, it's all about you have to see things through this lens. But really, biblically, sympathy is really what we should be aiming for because I can never enter into your experience and you can't enter into mine. Not completely, not 100%. Everyone's unique. But we have a common nature and our experiences play out in the, 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 the um, context of this common nature, which is given to us by God. There's something beautiful in that. There's something that Western civilization has understood that not every civilization has. Think about the caste systems of India. And, and you know, you're more spiritual if you're in the top of the caste system. Western culture hasn't even said that. Even, in, even during times of slavery, Western culture, uh, and it's the more Christian it, it has been, uh, the more, um, I think of what Robert E. Lee said uh, about the ground being level at the foot of the cross. There's this understanding that we both, have, we both have access to God. We both can relate to one another. Okay, that's a beautiful thing. We understand this. Which understanding is based um, upon evolution? Critical social justice theory or Christianity? And the answer is critical social justice theory. It came from a Darwinian evolution understanding. Or I should say, it doesn't make sense unless we start with that understanding. The idea that we've evolved and, we, and, and we're, we're just products of nature and we have um, these abilities and these capabilities and these understandings that the animal kingdom doesn't have. But you know what? They've developed differently. And we have now different social groups that see things differently. And, um, and, and now there's different worths ascribed. We're putting different premiums on certain people's truth over other people's truth and their story over someone else's story. And in some ways, we're saying this, this group is more worthy of uh, respect than this group. Not because of something in them that, that says they're living up to uh, some standard of decency, uh, but because of the, their experiences and the social group into which they were born. This is consistent with a Darwinian evolution understanding of human worth. And I could probably do a whole episode on this, but it really clicked with me more when I was in that museum and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, this is the foundation of what we're fighting, guys. It's, it's not a Christian understanding of who, who human beings are and what God designed them to be. 
because we're made in the image of God, we all have access to the tools of reason uh, because our maker is the author of those tools. It's not something that is particular to one social group or another, or their one social group has it down more than another because of the, their level of oppression. No, uh, that is not a biblical understanding. That is uh, very consistent with an evolutionary understanding of human beings. And so I just wanted to point that out. Maybe this needs more development, but uh, just an interesting thought uh, today. Now, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit here. Um, this is the Southern Baptist. I, I actually had about a million things I could have put up here, and I decided uh, that I would just put this up. Um, the Southern Baptists are in campaign mode. They're, it's, I think they have chat rooms where they just all, the big wigs all get together and they say, what are we going to do? What's our next play? So Albert Moeller, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, put out the convictional cooperation at the Southern Baptist Convention, and it, it's just a call for unity. We can just all kind of come around this Baptist faith and message. And of course, the seminary heads all circling the wagons, and yes, we agree. Um, the thing is, it's peace, peace, and there is no peace. You, you can't just come around these documents. And I've pointed this out a million times, but these documents, like the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, uh, they're being interpreted in different ways. And you have to get at the underlying assumptions that people are approaching these documents with. If you're approaching, I've said this before with inerrancy, if you're saying, I believe in inerrancy, I signed the document. But meanwhile, you're accepting the idea that, yeah, different cultures, they have their, their ways of looking at things and we should rid ourselves of white privilege and read the Bible through the lens of the oppressed or something like that. Well, you've given up objectivity. You've really given up inerrancy. You can sign that thing all day. It doesn't matter. And my concern right now uh, for the, um, the elites in the Southern Baptist Convention is that they are trying to quell uh, what they, they know is a forest fire. They're trying to put it out, and they're not. They're going about it by saying everything's fine instead of addressing the issues. And and I have actually, I have a ton of references I could have put up here in the last couple of weeks about Moeller, um, where he's kind of pivoting. He's trying to appeal to conservatives and liberals and not make mistakes. And instead of just taking a side, and, and I'll tell you what taking a side looks like. Taking a side looks like talking about what's happening in his own backyard. Talk about Matt Hall. Talk, deal directly with what Matt Hall has said, um, and Jarvis Williams and Curtis Woods. Um, deal directly with what's happening at Southeastern. Um, if, if you're not going to do that, if you're going to talk about uh, what's happening in the Methodists or what Christianity Today said or something else, then that's not really taking a stand. It's a political maneuver. And uh, to give you one example of a political maneuver, Albert Moeller for a long time, I could have given you a lot of examples, but he's been saying that, well, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed kind of out of slavery. And this is repeated often, that you know, this is the reason the SBC formed. Um, here's what he's saying now, and I'm just going to contrast those. Seminary President Albert Moeller summarizes the founding fathers of this school, all four of them, were deeply involved in slavery and deeply complicit in the defense of slavery, Moeller writes. Many of their successors, he says, advocated segregation and the inferiority of African Americans. We knew in generalities that the founders of the seminary owned slaves. We knew in generality that they've been very much a part of Southern culture, the culture of reconstruction and uh, even legal segregation, but it had never been documented. The report, written by six current and former faculty members, draws heavily on the seminary's own archives. It acknowledges the only reason a separate Southern Baptist denomination was formed back in 1845 was because Northern Baptists refused to appoint slaveholders as missionaries. The SBC is first and foremost established for the purposes of missions and evangelism, congregationalizing, planting churches. It's about reaching the nations for Christ. And so there are many things that people want a denomination to talk about. But the SBC was established in the beginning only uh, to foster and engender foreign missions, or what we now call international missions and home missions, we now call North American missions. And that, that still has to be the very heart of what we're doing. So look out for that going forward. I think things are coming at a mile a minute in the SBC, the development's happening. I mean, the ERLC right now is, um, is kind of getting ready for being uh, put under the microscope and they're sensitive about that. And, and there's, I don't have all the answers for what's going on in every quarter. There's a lot happening, some good, uh, some not so good, but, but we're moving towards the convention and I think things are just gonna keep heating up. And we just need to be, um, we, we need to be careful that we don't 
get sucked into something that sounds good but doesn't actually address the real problem. The real problem needs to be addressed. And that is the fact that critical social justice theory is being used in the Southern Baptist Convention as more than just an analytical tool. And I've pointed this out and given you plenty of evidence uh, over the last year for where this is happening, why it's happening, and how it's happening. Uh, I wanted to say a few things about Southeastern uh, real quick. Uh, I have more uh, for a future episode, um, but I, I just want to say these two things. This is happening pretty soon. Number one, Neil Shenby is going to be there tomorrow or depending on when I upload this. It might be tonight. I'm going to be on a flight, so I don't know when I'll get to this. But uh, but I wanted to just make a prediction here um, and make an observation. I haven't said much about Neil Shenby, and I, I want to do that real quick. Uh, I've appreciated some of Neil Shenby's work. Him and Pat Sawyer have uh, written for the Gospel Coalition, and Neil's gone back into some of these primary sources for critical theorists and analyzed them. Good to do that. He said some good things. Here's here's the here's the interesting part, though. Here's the here's the thing that makes me nervous a little bit. And I'm gonna tell you why. Last summer, I got into a friendly exchange with Neil Shenby where we were disagreeing. He was saying that intersectionality can be used in like a church ministry. You can have a single mom's ministry. That's intersectionality. And I was saying that's not intersectionality. There's a there, there's a kernel of truth to that, right? That's inter- they always start out with the kernel of truth because we all know, yeah, like different identities have uh, unique identities have different um, forms of oppression or different privileges and maybe there's different needs they have Kimberly Crenshaw Williams to you know moved identity politics in this direction she said that uh, certain demographics for instance black females um, need unique political representation because they're uniquely oppressed right so this is intersectionality now, Neil Shenvey is saying these observations are good observations. I would say, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a duh observation. You don't need intersectionality for this. You just need to look around and say, everyone has unique needs. Of course, that's why we have handicap parking. That's why we have a lot of things. But um, here, here's the thing. We don't go the extra step and say, well, because this person is uniquely disadvantaged, they have a unique way of viewing truth, and we should just sit down and listen to them. This is, this is the ERLC. This is Russell Moore and his Caring Well Conference. This is all the victims that stand up and they talk about their experience. Instead of having biblical pastors saying, this is why, this is how we're addressing in our church abuse and how we don't have abuse in our church because we're applying the Bible rightly, you have speakers instead that have been abused, some of them probably emotionally unstable. And they're getting up there and they're the experts now and they're telling pastors what to do. Do you see how the roles are reversed in a, in a sort of a way? In, you, instead of those who understand the word of God and can apply it, it's you need this unique understanding not that, that's outside of the scripture. So these, and it's fine to listen to a story. No one's arguing against that. But, but it's, the, it's the platforming of the story and the story must be bowed down to and everyone must submit to the story. You cannot question the story. Um, and, and this person is the authority now because they have been abused and they're going to tell churches what to do about abuse. That's where the standpoint epistemology comes in. And that's the same thing. with This is where intersectionality can lead. Those who, with a unique forms of oppression uh, are going to be running the show because they have a unique way of looking at truth and it's, it's the, the victimology uh, hierarchy. That's where it's off. And I, I haven't heard Neil really explain that. Maybe he has, but I pointed this out to him and he seemed intent on maintaining that intersectionality. Uh, the, you know, we, we have a lot we can learn from this. He doesn't see, at least he hasn't, maybe he's changed now, but he, he hasn't seen critical race theory and intersectionality as uh, worldviews. He, he's not seeing the big picture, in my opinion. I haven't seen that from him. He seems to focus on the analytical tool. And, and, and here's one example. He supports, and I, unless he's changed his mind recently, he has supported up until recently Resolution 9. Or he has at least said that, well, it didn't endorse critical race theory as a worldview, so therefore the Bible is supreme in Resolution 9. Not understanding that in order to take critical race theory or any of the critical theories as an analytical tool means you have to adopt it in some sense as a worldview. It is literally a lens by which you look at everything through. So I could say a lot more, but... But here, here's, here's why I'm a little nervous about this. Part of me wants to say it's good, but there's something, something's off. And, and, and here's, here's why I think it, something's off. At Southeastern right now, students have been given extra credit to go to this, this speech by Neil Shenby. 
Now, Neil Shenvey, he's a member at Summit Church where J.D. Greer is. And I could say, I don't know what that means, um, but I'll just throw that out there. That's where he goes. Why is Southeastern so um, big into pushing? Why, why do they want to platform Neil and why do they want people to go listen to Neil? I, I've had it from, from on good accounts from others that some of the biggest social justice warriors I know are saying, you know, you should really listen to Neil Shenvey. It's like he's the approved guy that the left, more left-leaning uh, evangelicals and Southern Baptists in particular, uh, they, want to, they want to platform him as the expert. Now, why is that? Why, why um, and, and I'm, I, it's hard for me to, to go down this path right now because there's a lot of things I know behind the scenes that aren't publicly available and I wish they would. But I know of, as much as I can say, I know of two seminaries, Southeastern's one of them, that have um, decided not to platform or uh, we'll, we'll say disinvited or decided not to platform certain uh, big name evangelicals who are very critical of social justice. And, and, and the reason for it is because uh, of their positions, but they are making it a requirement for students to go listen to Neil Shenvey. So if you're a student and you're listening, there, there's probably a lot of questions, clever questions you could ask of Neil. But I, my prediction is he's going to come out hard against critical race theory, but he's not going to put a name and a face with it in the Southern Baptist Convention. If anything, he's probably going to give people like Walter Strickland and Matt Hall passes because, well, they're not using it as a holistic worldview. They're just using some observations from it. So question you can ask to Neil Shenvey, first of all, is, uh, is critical race theory a analytical tool or is it more than that and see what he says that that would probably be a good question if there's a q and q and a time or ask him uh what it, find you know, there's a lot of matt hall quotes out there find some matt hall quotes and say do you agree with this and and, and get him to start taking sides because uh, that, that's one thing i haven't seen him really doing uh, a very telling question to ask was is there a value neutral way to interpret scripture this is, a, this is a very clever, I think, um, question. Is there a value-neutral way to interpret Scripture? So th this will get down to the heart of, do we take our white privilege with us? And is it inevitable that we're going to read the Scripture through our white privilege or through our Asian privilege or through our level of oppression of some kind? Or is there a value-free way to interpret Scripture? Is there a grammatical, historical way we can use these tools to find out what Scripture means? That's a, that'll be a very telling question for Neil Shenby. And maybe, maybe someone will show him this clip so he'll be ready for it. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. There's so many other questions that you could probably ask, but those are just a few off the top of my head that I would, if I was there, I'd probably be asking Neil some of these questions. But, uh, but I, I just think that's very interesting. And, and again, nothing personal against Neil whatsoever. I mean, he seems like a very nice guy. And I, I just think it's curious that um, a guy like Tom Askell is a pariah, but Neil Shenvey is loved by the same crowd that seems to hate Tom Askell. Why is that? Why is that? So um, last but not least, this is kind of the main uh, part of the show. I want to talk about conservatism. And we're talking about secularization. Of course, the critical theories come from a secularized understanding of humanity and truth. And, uh, you know, CPAC is going down a very interesting road right now. Uh, I'm going to give you my story sequentially. I arrive in Washington, D.C., took a train from Lynchburg. I get off the train and I get into a lift car and the guy who's my lift driver does it on the side, but full time or part time, I don't know which, he is a social justice, definitely social justice driven pastor, uh, youth pastor. And, um, and, and he, he says to me before I even tell him who I am, that when I said I'm from Lynchburg, he said he would never go down there because uh, it's racist. Lynchburg is racist. And I'm like, I mean, no. <laughs> Maybe at one time, there, but I wouldn't say it's characterized by that. But he was insistent that it be, it's in the South, it's racist. Uh, but then he started complaining about Washington, D.C. being racist. Um, and if, if, you, if you killed a man in Washington, D.C., if there was a murder, if you were white, they'd really investigate it with a fine-tooth comb. And if you're, you're a minority, if you're black, he was a black man. He said if they, if, they, if, they, if they killed me, that they wouldn't care about my life. So that's how we got the conversation started. So he asked me what I'm doing. I said, well, I'm here for CPAC. <laughs> I'm here because I'm promoting a film called Enemies Within the Church. And he said, what's that about? I said, what's about the social justice neo-Marxist push in churches, particularly conservative ones? He says, well, what's that? Now, I had an option at this point. 
I kind of knew where he was at politically, or at least I assumed he probably was more on the left. And because um, I, I wanted to get an opportunity to witness to him, I decided to take a theological instead of a political kind of way route. And so I said, well, we, I believe there's a corruption of the gospel going on. There's a kind of a new understanding of repentance, uh, of what guilt, what constitutes guilt. Um, uh, even the atonement, the atonement now extends uh, to uh, beyond individual souls, eternal things to these present structures in society. And that was never the intention of Christ. Of course, people, as they make decisions in life, uh, will change the structures that they live in. That's, that's obvious. But um, but that the gospel itself does not save uh, political systems and things of that nature. And so the social justice movement has corrupted the gospel in, in a myriad of ways. And, and so he thought, to, he said to me, well, isn't that just what Jesus taught? I said, well, no, it's not what Jesus taught. And we, we started getting into a theological discussion. Turns out this guy, and I don't really have a better name for it. He's racist. Like, like the old fashioned definition of racism. Like he, he really, he hates white people. And, and I, I, and it struck me afterward, I thought, this is kind of like the way it would be, the discussion, how it went, if I was talking to perhaps a Klansman, maybe, just someone who believed that certain demographics were just evil. <laughs> They're just evil. There's nothing you can do. That's who they are. And until they stop being evil, then I have nothing to say to them, that kind of attitude. Well, that's the attitude he had towards white people. And I, I said to him, I said, what about a white person who, you know, grew up never having a racist inclination or thought. I, mean, I said, I mean, I, I went to a multicultural church because he, he was saying evangelicals are just white. That's just the white church. I said, I went to a, you know, I had leaders in my church who were black or Hispanic. And, you know, I, I never, I, I don't have any hatred for anyone. What about someone like myself who, you know, I, I don't feel uh, or think that I am inferior in any way. And this is what he said to me. He said, because I have power, I can speak out against the injustices of society. But he's off the hook. He said, because I don't have power, meaning him, he cannot do anything about the injustices of society. So there's a moral imperative that I have to match that he does not. And I said, well, what do I have to do? Tell me what I need to do. And this is where the DNA of repentance gets changed, right? I said, tell me what I need to do to make it right, to, to become worthy, right? And he says, well you have to speak out against injustices. And I said, well, I, I mean, depending on your definition of that, I have done that. I do do that. Um, I think racism is a horrible thing. And he's, he said essentially, yeah, but, and, and that's kind of the, the trajectory of the conversation, but uh, it's just so bad for us. And that's kind of how it kept going. Is it just so bad. There was nothing I could do, no matter what I did, no matter how I spoke. And so there's a number of things I could have said I could have talked about forgiveness and asked him why he's not forgiving. I could have put him under the microscope a little. I could have um, taken the political route. I could have said, what do you mean you know, uh, there, you know, the, the, that the disparities are a result of hatred? Let me tell you why there's disparities. You know, fatherlessness has something to do with this. And I don't think those things would have worked in, in this if, if my goal is to try to share the gospel with him in a 20-minute car ride. So I went a more theological route. And right or wrong, you can determine how I did, but I, I, I didn't think about it till about three, two, two thirds of the way through the conversation. I recorded a portion of it. So here's seven minutes of a conversation that I had with my um, Lyft driver and, uh, and you can listen to it and you can, um, you, you, maybe you'll glean something from it, I don't know. Tobacco and cotton was not gonna make us the most powerful, powerful nation. So they had to move the workforce to the North to start creating yeah. factories and all that stuff. So until, those people who were afraid to confront their own until they confront their own and say, we have to change. We have to change, like drastically. So, so what I'm asking is put some bones or some meat on the bones. Tell, tell me what is it that they would have to do specifically though for them to satisfy. Just speak out, just, speak out. just talk. Speak right. Out. You don't, what, I keep saying it, there's a silence. So don't, you can't be silent is what I'm saying. I'm not saying you need to go and and stand in front of the White House, and but but speak out, like acknowledge, acknowledge what America is, acknowledge what America has been, and let's stop with the 
with the fairy tale, like, you know, speak out and say what, what is going on. So even Donald Trump, though, would, would fit within those parameters, perhaps, depending on how you define what you mean yeah, by speak he, out. He calls, he calls himself a Christian, too, so... Yeah, I don't think he is, but... No, I don't think he is either. Well, I can't judge that, because... Oh, I can. You can you know, judge him by his works, and he hasn't... He, he's never even made a profession of faith or given an understanding. His profession is that he grew up that way, but he hasn't actually... Okay, I can... He, he hasn't actually given, like, an explanation of how, how he repented and turned and how he was born again. Like, you've never heard them say that. Um, well, but, I, but anyway, yeah, so... Too, I just, it's, it's not some grand act that needs to happen, but there needs to be a voice that comes out of, and I use this term loosely, the evangelical church, because when I say even, I'm saying the white church in general. Um, there, need, there needs to be more of an outcry about what's going on, you know what I mean, and, and what has happened historically, and that this is not right, and that, that you don't hear that. And like I said, Sunday morning is still the most segregated thing in America. So like, there's a reason for that. You know what I mean? That that's not. Well, some of it. it I mean, it, there's probably mixed reasons, but some of it I think is geography and choice as well. There's not. No, same community. Like my mom lives in West Virginia. Yeah. Her church is a little diverse, but there are churches there that me and her would not be welcome. Yeah. People would look at us like. And that's wrong. What are you doing? Of course, yeah, yeah. Because you're part of the, you know. And, you're... But those are the people. Those are the people that I'm talking about. Those are the people that need to start to speak up and say, "Hey, we got it wrong. We need to, we need to change the way we do." So I would agree with you that if there's someone that's actually saying, "Man, we don't want certain ethnicities in our church," then they don't understand the communion that um, the body of Christ has, because we're all one in Him. But, but here's the thing: How do you actually compel them then to? change their ways, right? I can. You, you can, Only God can, right? So getting them to, to become part of some political move to, I mean, to be honest with you, that's a lazy man's way out, in my opinion, to, well, just vote this way and support these causes. How about instead you just stop doing what you're doing, practice the love of Christ, realize that you're part of the same body with this person and accept them into your church, invite them into your home. Um, so that's what I would say. That's what the, the gospel would, I think, that's the communion table. But if you start saying that, like, part of the gospel is you have to be for this political move no, no, or whatever. I'm not, I'm not I know you're not, but I'm, I'm saying that's what the documentary is about. We actually uh, have okay, people, gotcha, gotcha. we have people that are saying this is a gospel issue and then um, ramrodding, especially like white straight males, ramrodding them with, you have guilt, you need to sort of alleviate this guilt by getting involved with this political move. And we're saying that Christ is the one that um, brings the unity and that we have to look to him. And it's a, um, it's a vertical thing, not a horizontal thing. It's vertical first. But that's where, okay, that's where I get more into the political side because this is a Christian nation and God we trust. Um, or it was, it was formed under the idea that this, this was a Christian nation, right? Christian and, assumptions, yeah. And uh, going back to Germany, going back to South Africa, they addressed their issues. So, so the, the Christian church lived through all the atrocities in America. Mm -hmm. Now what you're saying is, well, we just have to let God change it. Like God has given us Christ has given us the power, but there's a there's a fear, there's a cowardice um, spirit that, mm -hmm. oh, we'll just sit back and let God fix it. Like, no, like, acknowledge, acknowledge your, your, your power and use your power, use your voice to change things. Like, that's, that's what I'm saying, like, because that's the problem with America to this day. You look at, you look at uh, South Africa, there are people who made millions of dollars during apartheid who now drive cabs for a living. Because that that money was given to sure. people who were, you know. So you look at you look at Germany. We'll never ever go to a point to where Jewish people are killed in death, killed in um, gas chambers. Hopefully, yeah. but yeah, we still live in a world in a in a country where African American life is not worth as much. If I were to go to Lynchburg, which is a place that I would never go, but if I were to go there, uh, my life is more in danger. So like, just like. Have you My been to Lynchburg? Yes. Okay. I, was, I mean, I have. No, but it's the South. I'm not. I'm, when I say Lynchburg, I say small Southern, small Southern town. So like the idea that my uh -huh. grandparents left the South because they were safer up North. It's safer for me 
in D.C. than it is in any Charlottesville, any any South Carolina, North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee. Like you're free to move about the country wherever you want to go. I have to think about where I'm going. I also have to be very, very careful of my behavior um, where I am because I, I can be taken out at the drop of a hat just like my granddad could. The only difference is I might not hang from a tree. So so what what's the, I mean, I know I, I may have dropped off, but what, real quick though, what, what what's the solution then? Because- Because I keep saying it's just-, just, just Right, so, but that's so, so general. So the, the solution, this is not, I know what the solution is To change is hearts, right? Right. Right. Well, I know what the solution is not. The solution is not just let God fix it. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm it. saying apply, so, so it's, it's not letting God just fix it and being passive, it's actually, becoming a new man, having a new relationship with God to where you don't view people that way with hate and you're going to let him uh, work through every decision you make in life. That's that's what I'm saying. That's what okay, the gospel I does. I, I completely agree. Right? I completely agree. But, what's, but, 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 but when you have people who've been in church all their lives, when do their, when does their heart change? Well, there's a lot of people in church who aren't Christians. Okay. Donald Trump being exhibit A. So, hey, God bless you. Thank you for this conversation. I appreciate it. So that was my conversation uh, with the Lyft driver. Now, I got to CPAC and uh, I met up with Judd Saul, the director for Enemies Within the Church, and I, I was looking for him. And as I'm looking for him, I saw a number of folks with these sh free thinking shirts. Uh, and, and they were, I think they were representing um, Atheists for Liberty. And it, it was one of the first things I saw at CPAC and I just thought, oh, that's interesting. It was, you know, conservative uh, political action group and Okay, well, all right. So I found uh, Judd Saul, the director, and uh, and we went down Radio Row and we just tried to see who we could talk to to get interviews uh, to support our film. And as we're going down Radio Row, I notice there is a, a cross-dresser, because a transgender person, dressed very flamboyant uh, dress uh, and a Trump supporter. <laughs> and people are taking pictures with him. And I thought, well, that... <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Uh, I also uh, noticed uh, a number of homosexuals, like rainbow flags and homosexual paraphernalia, people with t-shirts and so forth. I, I noticed things like that as well. And it, it was just interesting to me. It didn't, it wasn't like, didn't characterize the whole event, but it was, it was a presence there. Judd and I were also able to connect with some Christians there who do see uh, the issue with the social justice movement and are concerned about it. And um, one person in particular, I was able to do a little audio interview. And this is just one example of the kind of stories that I hear on a daily basis going on across the country. So I just want you to hear it. All right, so I'm here at CPAC and just talking to a young lady who goes to a PCA, Presbyterian uh, church, so you would think conservative, uh, out in the middle of the country. We're, not, we're withholding the names and the church uh, name as well uh, for now, but that will be coming out hopefully soon. Uh, but I just want to ask you, what have you experienced as far as the social justice movement is concerned in your church? Well, it's changing um, all over the city, and it's really getting liberal in a lot of the churches from dinner parties that I've gone to, discussions that I've had with pastors of um, Episcopal churches. But in my own church, I never thought it would happen. Um, I thought we were a very conservative church, biblical church. Um, and then all of a sudden, my old founding pastor has started to give sermons, and literally one day, we left feeling like he called us racists and talking about Jim Crow and bringing, you know, having guest speakers up, talking about oppression and how it's still that way. This is in the pulpit. And in fact, I went to the restroom and, and one lady was so upset. She said, did our pastor just call the white people racist? And um, two or three of us said, I believe he did. And it was shocking to me in, in my church. So you felt like you were being called out for racism. Is, and does the church have a problem with actual racism? You know, uh, certain ethnic groups uh, discriminating and saying, we don't want anything to do with another ethnic group or they're inferior? No, in fact, just the opposite. I will tell you, um, our church is one of the most diverse racial churches, racially diverse churches in um, our area for sure, but I would say across the country. We're one of the top fastest growing uh, churches in the country and one of the most diverse in the country. So um, I was very surprised 
that the that that came from the pulpit and it's and now we've always been involved in inner city work we give so much of our money to the to inner city and we all love it we're all involved we we do all of that that's why it was such a shock to us to hear that from the pulpit from our founding pastor and it was a change i'm telling you it was different yeah wow wow thank you for sharing that with us look forward to hearing more i know you had an organization that you wanted to research more that you thought might be influencing uh, the direction of the PCA and the church you're at, and we'll talk more about that. But thank you for sharing that. Appreciate it. It's really sad that this kind of thing is happening. What I did not see at the event were Constitution, Founding Fathers stuff, hardly any of that. Uh, I didn't see social conservative stuff, really, um, at all. Uh, What I saw uh, were people... Um, really, really, I, more of an identity politics stuff. You, you know, black conservatives and homosexuals, and uh, and all these these different groups. And so, I started thinking to myself, you know, what what is it that makes conservatism conservatism anymore? Because I, I always went back to it's it's the founding principles, right? It's it's and it's our culture too. It's not just principles that are abstract. It's it's the culture that that and and I think part of that's still around. Um, but but something's changed. Something's uh, kind of in the water. And I, I wanted to make some observations here. I think the direction conservatism is going in, if, if CPAC is any barometer of this, it's social media driven. And I, and I heard, actually, I was talking to someone this morning that Trump is the first social media president. That, you know, Donald Trump um, is, uh, you know, he had, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln being kind of like the telegraph president. You had Franklin Delano Roosevelt being the radio president. And you had... Uh, Ronald Reagan being the TV president, and Donald Trump is the internet president. And and, and it's true, he was big online, and now um, it, it, conservatism has gotten a little trolly. It's kind of the Breitbart brand of conservatism. It's it's kind of just let's own the libs. Uh, and so we're getting away from, I think, principles and things like that. Intellectual conservatism is is not what's driving it. Celebrity is what's driving it now. So... Um, so you have it's social media driven. Uh, you seem to have identity politics. These various groups uh, represented that have their own kind of angle on what conservatism is to them. I actually I talked to um, a homosexual there uh, for probably about twenty minutes. I did not record this one. Uh, I probably should have, but uh, you know he was saying, "Yeah, I believe in freedom. I believe in all these things, uh, conservative things." And I, I got back to family values and family being the um, uh, kind of the institution that is the uh, that shields that is the, the responsibilities of family are what keep the government from being the welfare state. You know, people take care of themselves in a family, and how the family is the building block of society. And he said, oh, he even said he agreed with that, but he's just a gay person who's supporting Trump. And so, so this identity has these different identities have now kind of bleeded into. Uh, conservatism as if they are important. It's important to, to wear on your sleeve that this is who you are, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, etc. Uh, I, I would say that there's a foundation, foundationlessness going on uh, because of this. There's uh, what, what holds us together now is kind of this love for America, maybe strong national security. We like the free market. We don't like socialism. It's kind of it, 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 the issues that um, that we can forward now as conservatives and have all the other various groups in conservatism agree on that that list is getting smaller. Uh, secure border would be on there perhaps, but the social issues now are they're they're not uh, as prevalent, and and so that's another observation. Now some positive things. I think there is a place for culture. I think um, you know there there is an understanding that America is good and that what makes America is is not just abstract principles it's music it's food it's it's um you know it's the experiences that have we've had over the course of the history of this country and it's all sorts of various different people that make up that and and i think that's that's actually a positive thing because culture is part uh that's what we're defending that that's really what we should be about um if you don't have culture if it's just abstract then first of all working class people don't identify with that at all but secondly what are you actually defending just principles, uh, but principles that don't seem to have application and also 
um, you know, it, it, it's a deviant, it, it, it's different than what conservatism has been for a long time. It's, it's not the hearth and the home and the community, the organic community you grew up in with responsibilities and attachments. It's not what motivated people to go to war and to fight. So I think culture is still there and a love for America is there. And that, that's a good thing. And I, and we may be even going more in that direction. Now, what America, you know, what is America in every sense I, that might be changing. Um, there's also a step away from elitism. I think intellectual conservatism is, is on its way out. And celebrity, uh, whether you like it or not, is on its way in. And so those who are the smartest, who are the, you know, they can evaluate things, they're not necessarily going to be the hotshots in the political realm anymore. And, uh, and, and there's some pros and cons to that, but the, the pros to it are that um, someone who, who truly is working class, perhaps, like a Joe the Plumber type, can actually maybe get somewhere. Uh, it's going to be easier. There's less barriers. So um, just wanted to throw that out there. Just some observations uh, for you about CPAC. Um, I, uh, I, I made the mistake while I was there of walking around with Judd Saul. I interviewed Judd. I interviewed myself and, uh, and, and <laughs> our microphone wasn't working. And so um, the audio quality wasn't that good. But Judd gave an update. All right. Hey guys, this is Judd Saul, director of Enemies Within the Church. I just wanted to uh, kind of give an update on where we're at with the movie. Right now, we're currently at CPAC uh, in the uh, conservative hub. I'm just going to kind of end it with this. Judd um, told me that Enemies Within the Church is moving full steam ahead. Uh, they, they haven't put out updates recently, but he's he's been busy with a number of things. But within the next few weeks, a mini documentary about First Baptist Naples should be coming out. And uh, Judd Saul is going to be, uh, and Enemies Within the Church is going to be bringing that to you. Let me t just kind of tell you where we're at. Uh, we are 80% complete. Uh, we have another round of filming we're going to be doing in two weeks. And then we are looking to raise the rest of the capital for the film. We need about $50,000 to finish off. And then we have a little more filming to do. And then we go into post-production. Our goal is to have the film out by mid-May before the Southern Baptist Convention. But we can't get that done without your help. We do need your support. And, uh, and we just had, we had a good time at CPAC and uh, I appreciate those who support me, allowing me to do this. Again, if you're going to the Shepherds Conference, please, please reach out to me. I would love to see you there. And uh, until next time, God bless. Hope this was helpful. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details